hold up, time out, what is going on here? That might be what you're asking yourself. And to give it to you straight, first impressions are extremely important. And back in 2020, when I started my podcast, um, I was kind of piggybacking off of the interest of Unsolved Mysteries Volume 1 by doing recap episodes of those first and original six episodes. But as my podcast progressed, I kind of turned away from doing recaps to doing more original content. And so I want to make sure that when people stumble across my podcast, that the very first few episodes that they listen to are more representative to what I'm all about and what I do here. So with that being said, I'm going to delete my first six episodes made in 2020. And for the next six weeks, I'm going to be posting two episodes, one recent original episode, along with one of my throwbacks. So just sit tight, listen to those episodes again if you want to just get a refresh or skip them. Not offended at all because if you've been here for a while, you've probably already listened to those episodes. I also just want to let you guys know that I appreciate you so much for sticking it out with me, for being with me for the last two years. I feel like we've really grown together. I know that I've grown into myself as an artist, as a podcaster, and I just want to tell you guys that I appreciate you so much and thank you for coming along with me on this journey. I hope you have a great week. Enjoy the episode. You're listening to Mystery Still Unsolved, a podcast where we discuss unsolved mysteries both past and present. I'm your host, Rochelle. Today, we will be discussing No Ride Home. Hello, hello. You guys, I have been just so overwhelmed by the response from last week's episode. You guys followed and shared on your Instagram and Facebook, and some of you sent me so many kind comments of encouragement. Honestly, I feel like the luckiest person in the world having the nicest listeners in the whole world. Um, As I'm sure you all know, when you put your heart and soul into something, it can be super scary to send it out into the world to be critiqued. And I'll be honest with you, last Tuesday after I posted, I immediately turned my phone off and hid under the covers of my bed. But a few hours later, I was able to gather some courage and I turned my phone back on and I was pleasantly surprised. So thank you guys so much. So welcome to the second episode of Mystery Still Unsolved. If you're not already following the Instagram account at Mystery Still Unsolved, please do. I have been glued to my phone this past week reading all of your amazing theories. I am shocked by how many of you think that the whole family is still alive. And really, wouldn't that be the best outcome? It would be so cool if in a few years they were able to come out and be like, Surprise! We're actually alive! We've been in witness protection, hiding out in Roy, Wyoming. That would seriously be the best. But then again, the cynic in me is saying, I'm not so sure. Maybe I will use this as a learning opportunity to become more optimistic like you guys. Teach me your ways, please! I need all the help that I can get. Oh, I should also mention before we begin that we do have a winner of our Instagram contest last week. Congratulations, Alex Wardell. You are our winner. You will be getting a message from me shortly so that I can get that $25 Amazon gift card out to you. Thanks so much for participating, everyone. I'm still trying to spread the word around here, so I will be holding another contest to reach even more people. Yay! So, same kind of deal. Go to the post on my Instagram at MysterySillUnsolved. Like the post and tag as many people as you want. Each tag is a separate entry, and next week we will be giving away a... $20 gift card to Starbucks. You can use those $20 to caffeinate yourself so you can stay up late and research even more true crime. So yeah, go ahead to Mystery Still Unsolved on Instagram and enter for your chance to win. Today, we will be covering the Unsolved Mysteries episode titled No Ride Home. This episode is about a 23-year-old man who was left at a party about an hour and a half away from where he lives with, you guessed it, No Ride Home. And... Ugh, I've got to tell you, this was one of my biggest fears when I was growing up. 
either that I would be left at a party or I might accidentally leave someone else at a party. I actually have a personal experience with this. In my senior year of high school, one of my good friends went to a Halloween party. And I can't exactly remember why I didn't go, but I can make a pretty good guess that it's because I was a huge loser. (laughs) I mean, I'm laughing, but I'm not joking. Anyway, the next day, I was supposed to meet this friend before school, but she didn't show up. I tried calling her multiple times, and she wasn't answering. I tried to not let myself panic, which, if you know me, is super hard because panic comes naturally to me. I tried to brush it off that she had probably just overslept and was running late. I thought, it's okay, I'll just talk to her at lunch. Deep breaths, deep breaths, deep breaths. But lunch came around and she didn't show up. I asked every friend I knew that had gone to that party if they had given her a ride home or if anyone had spoken to her, and no one had. Then, horror of horror, my calls started getting sent straight to voicemail. Okay, now I'm convinced my friend is dead. I had to test the period after lunch, so I decided to go take my test, and then I'd rush over to her house. I arrived at her house, and her car was missing from the driveway. My heart sank. I banged and banged on the door, and no one answered. Keep in mind, it's now like 1 o'clock in the afternoon, and no one has spoken to her and coming up on 12 hours. She and I had been friends for years, so I knew exactly where her family kept their spare key. So I got in, and I started yelling her name. A few moments passed, I heard some shuffling in a bedroom, and she stumbled to the door, bedhead and all. I threw my arms around her and told her how much I loved and hated her at the same time. Long story short, she had gotten drunk at the party, her sister had come to get her, that's why her car wasn't in the driveway, and as she was sleeping off her hangover, her phone had died. Better her phone than her, I thought. This story has a happy ending, but for those six to seven hours, I was absolutely terrified. That day, I got a very small glimpse of losing a loved one, but I can't even begin to imagine how the friends and family involved in this particular case must feel about the disappearance of their loved one. I want to make sure I cite my sources for this episode. Again, I obviously used the show itself as the main source of my information, but I also did my own research. So... I'd like to credit NewYorkTimes.com, Health.USNews.com, NBCNews.com, Marie Claire, Reddit, and Grunge. Make sure you stay tuned all the way to the end because right before I posted this episode, there were updates on the case. Okay, so just a heads up, we're going to meet a whole bunch of people right at the very beginning of this episode, and it might feel overwhelming, but I'm going to do my very best to keep everything straight for you. This episode begins by panning over a creek and a shoe. A woman later identified as the mother of Alonzo Brooks named Maria Ramirez says that since this has happened to her family, she is extremely hurt. She doesn't trust anyone and she tells her children and all of her grandchildren, do not believe that everyone is your friend. This case takes place in various places in Kansas, but we start out in Gardner. His mother, Maria has five children, two boys, and three girls. Alonzo Brooks is her baby. I just want to say right now that Maria seems like the sweetest lady on the planet, and my heart is so broken for her, and I wish that I could just reach through the screen and give her a big hug. I can just tell that she is a very loving, dedicated, and affectionate mom, and it just breaks my heart that she is so sad and suffering. But that being said, Maria Ramirez is a tough cookie and she's here to find out information about her son and she's not playing any of your games. She says that she wears Alonzo's jacket all the time to feel closer to him and seriously, it tugs at my heartstrings because I'm a mom and I know that that is exactly what I would do if something happened to one of my children. Cindy Brooks, Alonzo's sister-in-law, tells us how much Alonzo was loved. He was the baby after all. He had a particularly strong relationship with his mama. And I get it, Vance, he's the baby of our family, and he's a little boy, and he is definitely spoiled. I just want him to stay sweet and precious forever. Demetria Leslie, Alonzo's older sister, describes him as a shy, loving, sweet little kid. Edward Ramirez is Alonzo's uncle. He says that Alonzo was a polite young man and a gentleman. He was happy to see someone so polite his age. 
especially nowadays with teenagers, they have a bad rap. His sister, Felicia Brooks, says he was a neat freak, very clean and very particular. And we all know they don't make them like that anymore. So his mama did a good job raising him. Rodney English, Alonzo's friend, says you would always see Alonzo with boots and a beanie on. He'd wear that beanie so low you couldn't even see his eyes, and he kind of chuckles about it, so you can tell it's something they teased him about. Bill Brooks, Alonzo's oldest brother, says that they moved from Topeka, Kansas, which is a more urban part of Kansas, to Gardner, which is more like suburbia. His mom wanted to move them to a place that was a bit safer and slower paced. Billy says when they were younger, he would tease Lonzo and try to get him to be less polite. He was trying to toughen him up in a sense because he wanted him to be able to defend himself if he needed to. He didn't want people to take advantage of him, and his mom would always stick up for him and tell them that they needed to leave him alone. I get it. He's the baby. Leave him alone. Let him be cute and sweet forever. His mom returns and tells us that Lonzo's sport of choice was football. She also mentions that Lonzo used to mess up her hair and she hated it, but now it's one of the things that she misses most. Oh my gosh. Everything that Maria says makes me want to cry. It just makes me want to not take advantage of the little things, even the things that I think I hate. On screen text reads April 3rd, 2004, Gardner, Kansas. Alonzo's mom says that day he comes to her and he says, I'm going to a party. And his mom says, what party? Just like that. I told you, Maria is a no-nonsense mom. She wants to know where you're going and you better tell her fast. Apparently, a friend of a friend of a friend was leaving for the service and they wanted to go to the party. Justin Sprague, Alonzo's friend, came to pick him up. Justin says he's not even sure how they learned about the party He knows it definitely wasn't something that they had planned, but they just kind of decided to go last minute to give him something to do. Daniel Fune and Tyler Brogard, Lonzo's other friends that went to the party, corroborate with what Justin is telling us. Apparently, Lonzo wasn't really a huge party guy, but he wanted to go that night. When Justin arrives to pick up Alonzo, he noticed that Lonzo was limping, and his mom says he had twisted his ankle playing basketball the week before. Alonzo is referred to by many names in this documentary. His family and friends alternate between calling him Alonzo, Lonzo, and Zoe. Anyway, Lonzo asks Justin if he can have a ride to the party with him, and Justin says, sure. The party was in Lacine, and before the party, no one had even heard of the small town roughly over an hour away from Gardner. This is a tiny town with a gas station. They don't even have a real grocery store. There's not very many houses. It's literally just in the middle of nowhere. I live in Utah, which is a lot more populated than my New York friends imagine, I'm sure. I think most of them think I live in a little town like Lacine, but it's really not. But if you know Utah at all, when I think of this town, I've never been to Lacine, so I don't really know what it's like. But what I picture in my head is if you've ever been to Capitol Reef National Park, you know that you've got to drive through this little town named Torrey. It has like a population of 45 people. Anyway, that's what I think of. There's not like no stoplights, no stop signs, no grocery stores. There's one gas station, a couple of hotels, and like a handful of restaurants. I think there's actually a restaurant there called Mexican Food. I'm not even kidding. I'm pretty sure that's what it's called. Justin says they arrive at a house. There's a long driveway leading up to the house and a creek running alongside the driveway. They feel kind of weird and out of place walking up to the house, but Zoe eases the tension by yelling out, who wants a beer? And then proceeds to pass them out to complete strangers at the party. I always watch these episodes with subtitles on. It just makes it easier for me to know what people are saying. And and it's at this point that the subtitles read, country music plays in the background. And I'm like, ugh, I hope I'm wrong, but I think I know where this is going. We're told that everyone at the party seems to be about 16 to 21 years old, so it's a younger crowd. People inside were dancing, playing flip cup. Justin and Zoe were having a blast. Daniel Fune says when he gets to the party a few minutes later, there are about 40 to 50 people. He says they know a few people there, but most of the people they don't know at all. Tyler, another friend, says there were a lot of people at the party and it seemed like most of them were pretty tight with one another, so he remembers kind of feeling like an outsider, in a sense that everyone was really country and they, you know, 
aren't. I want to know what he means by they were really country. Like, I think I know what he means, but I wanted him to elaborate more on that. Like, did they all ride into the party on John Deere tractors? Was everyone wearing plaid and rolling around in bales of hay? Were people wearing cowboy hats and chewing on long grass? Like, what's going on, Tyler? Paint me a picture. Tyler notes that usually, Alonzo was normally a quiet person, but tonight at this party, he seems more outgoing than ever. Justin and Alonzo sit down at a table and start drinking. Then Justin walks away to talk to a friend, and when he comes back, Alonzo is getting into a fight with someone. Like, they're really getting into it. They're in each other's faces screaming at one another. His friends think something really serious is about to happen, so Daniel steps in to break it up. He pulls Alonzo to the side to try and de-escalate the situation. It seems to work because the fighting stops. Daniel says that Alonzo didn't let the racial feud spat ruin his evening. He went right back to having a good time. It's at this point that I should probably officially mention that Alonzo is half black and half Hispanic. I think all these country folks aren't used to hanging out with people of color, and there's definitely some racial tension going on. It's a shame that there are still places like this that exist, but I know that it's a real thing, and that it's something that is not a problem of the past, and whether you want to believe it or not, it's something that continues to happen to people of color every day. Justin says there were quite a few people at the party that he could tell had a problem with Alonzo because of his skin color. Tyler says that now that he thinks back on it, Alonzo was probably the only black person at this entire party. Daniel only stays for an hour and a half before his ride decides to leave and he has to go along with him. Tyler also left after only about 45 minutes and he says goodbye to Alonzo. So now it's just Alonzo, Justin, and Adam. Adam is a friend of Justin's, but not Alonzo. Justin runs out of cigarettes, and he tells Alonzo he's going to leave, buy some, and come back. Justin turns left when he leaves the driveway, when he should have turned right. He gets lost, and his car ends up getting stuck on a gravel road. They don't really get into how this happened. I don't know if he bottomed out or if his car crashed into a ditch, but whatever happens, he gets stuck for about 45 minutes to an hour in a place that's 30 minutes north of where he is supposed to be. I don't know about you, but that seems like a pretty long time for you to be driving in the wrong direction and not know that you're lost, but I'm going to give Justin the benefit of the doubt that he would have asked someone for directions if there had been anyone to ask, but... I hope he wasn't being the stereotypical man and just didn't want to ask anyone. It's at this point Justin calls Adam and he tells Adam to tell Alonzo that he's going home and to get a ride with Adam instead. Justin says when he makes this call, he can hear Alonzo in the background giving him crap about getting lost. So Justin knows that Alonzo knows that he needs to get a ride home with Adam. Later on that night, however, Adam is ready to leave back to Gardner, and he can't find Alonzo anywhere. He assumes Alonzo must have gotten a ride home with someone else. We never speak with Adam, I'm assuming because he declines to participate in the episode, but I do wish that we could have heard his story. I want to know how many people were still there when he left, and all the things, but we don't get to hear from him. Also, Adam and Alonzo have a mutual friend Justin, but they don't really know each other. I wish they could have explained this further. The next morning, Alonzo's mom gets a phone call asking, hey, is Alonzo home? And it kind of startles Maria a bit, and she says, he better be. She rushes to his room, and it looks like no one has been there. She yells at his name, nothing. She runs back to the phone and says, no, he's not home. Where's he at? She seems pretty pissed about it, just like my mom would have been. And remember, Marie doesn't play no games. The person says, well, maybe he stayed the night at a friend's. Already the mom's like, no, he did not. She knows her son and she knows that's not something that he would do. So Maria says to the person on the phone, you better call everyone that was at this party and find out where he is. And then she hangs up. I love Maria. She's great. I can totally see myself in her in this moment. I do wish they would have revealed who called her. They just refer to him as he, and I want to know who it was. I was assuming it was Justin, but then later on in the episode, it's told that Justin, Tyler, and Daniel all get calls from someone asking if they've seen Alonzo. So who was the original caller? I feel like this is really important. 
Rodney English, another friend of Alonzo, this is the same friend who was teasing Alonzo about wearing his beanie solo, he gets a call from Alonzo's mom asking if he's seen him. I don't know if this is important or not, but I'll just mention it anyway. Justin, Daniel, and Tyler are all white, if you couldn't tell by their extremely white bread sounding names, and Rodney is black. Maria tells Rodney that Alonzo went to a party last night and he hasn't come home, and the people he went to the party with are not with him. This raises a red flag for Rodney and for all of us, honestly. People, do not leave your friends at a party. Leave with the people you came with. Make sure everyone is accounted for. These are your friends. You've got to watch out for each other. Because if your friends aren't going to look out for you, who will? Stay safe and stay together. Rodney steps up because he's not messing around either and demands that Justin, Tyler, and Daniel, people he's never met before, take him to where the party was at. He wants to see this place for himself and look for Alonzo. He notices on the way down that this is not a safe place that he as a black man feels comfortable. He's getting some really weird vibes. Even during the interview, years later, he abruptly tells the cameraman, I want to leave. I don't feel safe here at all. Rodney says that they walk up along the side of the house and they're looking everywhere. It's a little bit later that Rodney finds a boot and a hat that belong to Alonzo. The items are not close together. It's almost as if they were thrown from a vehicle window. While Rodney, Justin, Daniel, and Tyler are looking for clues to help them find their friend, a guy on a four-wheeler pulls up and tells them that they need to leave right now. At this point, they all know something is definitely wrong. Their friend is missing, they have a boot and a hat, and now there's some guy telling them that they need to leave? Tick-tock, it's sketch o'clock. Rodney starts asking Justin some tough questions, which he should, asking him the questions that we all want to know the answers to. How do you take someone to a party and then you don't come back home with them? Justin said when he left, Alonzo was having a good time. There wasn't a single trace of animosity in the air, and that's why he felt comfortable leaving him there for what was supposed to be just a little bit. I don't know if Justin is in denial or simply misremembering, but come on, Justin, you just told us that Alonzo had gotten into a fight with someone who didn't like black people, and there were other people there who had a problem with him being a black man, and you're telling me now that there was no trace of animosity in the air? Let's be real. Rodney is all of us, and he's not falling for his line either. He says to leave him there an hour away from home. I don't understand that. Maria goes to the police, and they tell her she has to wait 48 hours because Alonzo is 23. Maria knows her son. They have an extremely close relationship, and she just has a bad feeling that something went wrong at this party. His sisters return to tell us that Alonzo to not come home was very out of character for him. He's not someone that did that. Billy, Alonzo's brother, and his wife get a call about Alonzo's disappearance, and they decide to head down to Lacine to speak to the owner of the home. They find out that the house is actually empty because it's a rental property, which makes me wonder who's the guy on the four-wheeler that was telling Alonzo's friends that they needed to leave. Then, Unsolved Mysteries post an aerial view of the house, and I'm going to post a picture on Instagram so that you guys can see it. You see the house and a creek that runs along the back of the house, which, do you remember when Justin said there was a long driveway and the creek ran along the side of the driveway? I'm looking at this picture and the driveway is actually not very long and the creek does not run along the side of it. So now I don't really know if I can trust Justin's retelling of the story. Not that I think he's lying or trying to hide anything, but I don't know if I can trust the detail that he's providing. The creek is actually far enough away, in my opinion, that I don't even think you'd hear it when you were coming up the driveway. Maybe I'm reading into it too much, but I don't know. I'm going to stew on it for a bit. The reason I find it so curious is because my grandparents live in a tiny town in upstate New York, and we would go, my brother and I, we would go there for weeks in the summer to spend time with them. And they had a creek that ran along the front of their home. And I don't remember hearing it at all unless we walked to the end of the driveway to get mail from the mailbox. And at my grandparents' house, this creek is like right in front of their home. The creek is far enough away, at least from the picture that I'm looking at, that I don't think you'd be able to hear it at all, especially when there are 40 to 50 people talking and laughing, music playing in the background. It just doesn't make sense to me, but let me know what you guys think. 
Billy and his wife drive around town and right away, they feel out of place too. They feel like the locals want to know what they're doing there. No one even interacts with them. Billy says he could just tell that they were not wanted there. Billy and his wife sit down with the sheriff of Lacine and try to convey the seriousness of their brother missing and are basically met with, eh, he'll turn up. Kids his age always turn up. And Billy's wife snaps back, how many people do you know walking around with no shoes on and it's rained? Feeling defeated, they return home and put their trust in the police. That's really all they can do at this point. Lynn County Sheriff Paul Phila was a deputy at the time and he agrees to speak with us, but off camera, which raises a flag for me because I'm like, what are you afraid of? But whatever, let's continue. He says on April 4th, he went to the address in search of a missing person. He says Alonzo wasn't at the house, which we've already established. He walked around the creek and they didn't see him there either. On April 7th, the case is turned over to the KBI, which is the Kansas Bureau of Investigation. The KBI conducts a very extensive search of the property. They bring dogs and walk along the creek bed looking for evidence. The Kansas Highway Patrol even supplies a helicopter to assist in the investigation. The FBI joins in on the search on April 10th. They conduct their own investigation. The FBI believes this may have been a hate crime after talking to several witnesses that mention Alonzo was threatened and was the target of racial slurs. On April 12th, an underwater rescue and dive team searches the creek. This is not important at all, but I just want to poke fun at my husband because every episode I want to make fun of him just a little bit. But it's at this point the divers drive in on a white pickup truck and my husband says, ooh, nice truck. (laughs) What a loser. Anyway, moving on. Bill Villa, one of the original divers, says when they conducted the search, the water in the creek was about three feet deep. There were six divers total, and they divided the search area into four sections. He said that they did an extremely thorough search, and they did not find anything to cause them to believe that Alonzo had drowned or had been placed in or around the creek. They told the sheriff of the town that they'd be more than happy to come out again and search, but they were never invited back. On April 15th, Alonzo has been missing for 11 days, and there's still no sign of him. Maria says that she is mad at all of those kids from Gardner who went down there and didn't come back with her son. And same Maria, I feel the same way. Mama Maria says she yelled at the kids. Why did you leave my son there? And no one had an answer for her. I don't know about you, but if I were one of those kids, I would have moved the heck out of Gardner. Because can you imagine how awkward it would be to run into Maria at like the grocery store when you left her son at a party and now no one knows where he is? I don't know about you, but I would be terrified to experience Mama Maria's wrath. No way. Now we hear again from Sheriff Phila. He says there were hundreds of interviews conducted by the KBI and the FBI, which hundreds? I thought there were only like 50 people at this party. Why are you interviewing hundreds of people? I appreciate the thoroughness, but I'm a little bit confused here. Meanwhile, law enforcement is pushing the idea that Alonzo got drunk, took off his shoes, and tried to walk home from the party, which in my opinion is absolute nonsense. Not because I don't think a drunk person would do something stupid. I know a lot of drunk people that have done dumb things, but guys, it's been 15 days. We would have found him either dead or alive by now, especially since he wouldn't have gotten very far because, keep in mind, his ankle was messed up. Maria says they were told by law enforcement that her family and Alonzo's friends were not allowed to come down and look for him. They wanted to do their own search of the property, but the sheriff said no. Alonzo's family said they were also told to stop calling them. We'll contact you, but don't call us anymore which I'm surprised Mama Maria followed those rules. I for sure thought that she would have cussed them out. I can almost picture her in my mind saying, uh, I'll come down if I want to come down and I'll call you all damn day until you find my kid. On May 1st, 27 days after the party, the sheriff finally grants the family permission to search the property for themselves. Billy says that they reached out to friends and family and they had a good turnout of people wanting to help. They started the search not thinking that they'd find anything because keep in mind, the area has been searched by local law enforcement, the KBI, and the FBI, but they wanted to at least give it a try. Karen Turner, a volunteer searcher, says there was a white shed back in 2004 that's not there anymore, and she told some people in her group, 
hey, we should search that shed. And that's where she and a few other members of the search party were headed when they found Alonzo's body alongside the creek bed. Billy got a call from his uncle on the walkie-talkie saying, we found him, just follow the creek and you'll see us. So Billy runs out as fast as he can and he finally sees him. He tries to reach out to his brother, but his uncle stops him and says, don't touch him, don't go over there. We don't want to disturb anything about the scene. I feel so terrible for Billy and his uncle Edward at this moment. This is someone that they love and to find him this way is just heartbreaking absolutely heartbreaking. I teared up a lot during this episode because this family is seriously so nice and it makes me so sad that something awful has happened to them. Edward says through tears, you see him laying there and you think back to all the times that you've seen him walking around having fun and you see this young man just lying there. His life is completely gone. Edward comments that he's so happy his sister, Alonzo's mom, wasn't physically able to come to the search due to her health problems, so she does not have the memory that he has of finding Alonzo like that. His comments just touch my heart so deeply, and it's so sad. It's really just so sad. After the family finds him, there was an explosion of law enforcement, KBI, FBI, the media, everybody. Dr. Eric Mitchell is the medical examiner who performs an autopsy on Alonzo Brooks. And I am just going to say this now. When he comes up on the screen, I don't like him. He gives me some bad vibes immediately. I'll get into what I found out about him, but I just want everyone to know up front that I did not like him immediately. Upon further research of Dr. Eric Mitchell, I found a New York Times article about him. The New York Times article reads that a Syracuse, New York, yep, where I grew up, medical examiner resigned after an inquiry proved he was doing some pretty sketchy stuff back in 1993, like removing organs without the family's consent and storing skeletons improperly. And what does that even mean, storing skeletons improperly? Does that mean he just wasn't abiding protocol? Or was he like bringing some skeletons back to his house? One is careless and one is awfully creepy. So what are we talking about here? And I know that some of you might be wondering, maybe this is not the same Eric Mitchell. I mean, it's a pretty common name after all. But I also found like a medical LinkedIn type site that lists a Kansas medical examiner with the same name who listed previous employment at SUNY Upstate Medical University. Coincidence? I think not. I don't know if the family is aware of Dr. Mitchell's history, but if I were them, I would demand a second set of eyes on that autopsy immediately. Anyway, these are Dr. Mitchell's findings. Warning, as this is an autopsy, it will be pretty detailed. So if you're squeamish, why on earth are you listening to this podcast? But more importantly, if your kids are around, you might want to pop some headphones in real quick. Dr. Mitchell said that the body was closed with some personal items, including a ring. After a closer look at the body and the clothing, he can say that there was no penetrating injuries as a cause of death. So no signs of a stabbing or a gunshot wound. No evidence of any acute bone fractures. Could he have drowned? Possibly, but his airways were clear and there were no water found in his lungs. The soft tissues in his neck are gone, which is unfortunate but also makes sense because soft tissues in the body are the first to decompose. But this makes it difficult to know if he was strangled. The soft tissue in the neck also had signs of animal and insect activity, and unfortunately, because there was so much time between him dying and being discovered, it would be almost impossible to determine if strangulation or any other cause of death around the neck occurred. There's no broken bones, there's no blunt force trauma. If he has been beaten, there's certainly no identifiable injuries indicating that. And let's keep in mind that Alonzo is a football player. It's going to take a lot more than a wimpy little fight, one that doesn't even produce any visible bruises or injuries, to take him out. I mean, if he did get ganged up by one or a few guys, wouldn't there be bruising, a broken nose, maybe broken ribs to indicate this? But there's nothing. Dr. Mitchell says, Mr. Brooks died. I do not know the circumstances of his death or the cause of his death. He doesn't know if it was intentional or accidental. He just doesn't know. What the heck? Eric, you are a doctor, right? We didn't just 
pick this guy up somewhere. This is what he does for a living. Why don't you have any answers? Can we please get a second opinion of this autopsy? Everyone agrees that there must have been foul play. Why are his shoes and hat so far away from where he was found? Why wasn't his body found all those times there were extensive searches up and down the creek? Well, everyone thinks there's foul play, except for law enforcement. Remember, Lacine is a small town, and Brooke's sister-in-law says there are a lot of opinions and theories floating around on what might have really happened. Here are just a few of those theories. Someone said, maybe he decided to go swimming while he was drunk and he drowned. However, Dr. Mitchell says that there were no water in his lungs. Another person says, Alonzo was held in an abandoned barn and tortured, but Dr. Mitchell says that there were no, there was no evidence of torture. It was an accidental death, a desperate cover-up. Nothing about this death seems accidental to me. Someone else says the people who were at the party know what happened, and they were told to keep their mouths shut. I think that you could get a handful of people to agree to stay quiet, but the more people that know, the less likely people are actually going to stay quiet about it. Someone claims his friends from Gardner know exactly what happened to him, and they're trying to pin it on the people of Lacine. I guess it's not impossible, but I think it's pretty unlikely. Someone says... Someone killed him and moved his body several times before he was found. I actually think that there's a lot of validity to this theory, because it could explain why he wasn't as decomposed as he should have been, and why, even though he was found by the river, there's no water in his lungs. Someone says it could be drug-related, but what if any evidence is there to support this? Someone says maybe he started walking down the highway and someone bad picked him up. There could be truth to him just being a victim of opportunity, but why? how would that person that picked him up know to place him in the creek right next to where the party occurred? Someone says, maybe something bad happened at the party and he tried to run down to the road and some people grabbed him and threw him in the trunk and took him to a different location. I am gravitating more to this theory more than any of the others. Justin says some law enforcement officers told him that they did have reports from witnesses of the party saying that there were a few spats later on in the night. One thing that they heard is that Alonzo and a white girl were seen flirting with each other and some guys at the party did not like it. Tyler thinks that if the N-word had been thrown around that night, Alonzo definitely would have been upset about it. Tyler believes Alonzo was jumped by several people. While this would make a lot of sense, there's just no evidence from the autopsy to support this. His face would have been swollen or he would have had some broken ribs or something. Remember, Alonzo is not a weenie guy. He's a big, strong man, but there's no bruising or fractures. The family wonders why the police and the KBI searched for 27 days and found nothing. Then their family is allowed to look and they find him 30 minutes later. The members of the dive team are adamant that if Alonzo's body had been in the creek when they were searching for him, they would have found him. They believe with all of their heart that the body was placed there after the fact. One theory that comes from Dr. Mitchell, so take it with a grain of salt, people, because he doesn't know what he's talking about, is that due to the rainstorm that night, the water levels raised in the creek. If Alonzo's body was in the water at that time, it could have floated down the river into a clog of logs and branches. Then the water levels could have lowered again and he was trapped in the clog. Then later on, the water levels raised again after another rainstorm. He was released and floated down the river again to where he was later found. But Billy remarks that Alonzo was not bloated. He in fact looked like he was sleeping. When a body is in the water for a long period of time, say 27 days, it begins to bloat and the skin turns purplish, gray, and sometimes even white. Alonzo's skin color was quite normal. Billy said at the first, it looked like Zoe was just sleeping on the side of the creek. He didn't even look dead. Maria shows us the personal items Alonzo had on him when they discovered him, like receipts and a pay stub. They do not appear to have any water damage whatsoever. Billy thinks that perhaps the sheriff, not maliciously or anything, may have mentioned to someone that the Brooks family was coming to do their own search. Then that person told someone, and then that person told someone, and before you know it, the whole town knows what's going to happen. 
And that would have been the perfect opportunity for the bad guy to place Alonzo's body at the creek for his own family to find. Billy believes that Alonzo could have been placed in a meat locker so the body wouldn't decompose as quickly. I know that when you freeze a body and then the body thaws, cells burst, and so this is something that medical examiners would have picked up on. Well, at least medical examiners who know what they're doing and aren't sketchy AF. But I don't know if a meat locker and a freezer are the same thing. I'm guessing a meat locker is more like a walk-in cooler, and I don't know if that level of coldness would affect body cells. If anyone knows the answer, first, I'm concerned, why, why, why do you know this? And second, let me know. Of course, Dr. Mitchell says it's impossible to know if Alonzo's body had ever been frozen, but I know for a fact that that's not true. I do know that if there's significant decomposition, I could see this being plausible, but Billy says that when he finds Alonzo, it looks like he's sleeping, so I don't think his body has been that badly decomposed. Dr. Mitchell, this guy, says he can't tell if Alonzo placed himself in that environment or if someone else placed him there. He goes on to say, get ready for this, and I quote, When people kill people, they dispose of the body in a convenient fashion. Moving a dead body is not convenient. Therefore, it would be impossible for anyone to have done that. Whatever. If people set their mind to something, they can do anything, good or bad, especially if they have some outside help. So I don't believe Dr. Mitchell's logic at all. Plus, I don't like him, so I don't agree with most of what he has to say. Justin says he blames himself for whatever happened to Alonzo that night. And while I have gotten mad at Justin a few times during this episode, I really don't think that it was his fault. I think if Justin would have stayed, those people might have harmed him too. We can't blame and torture ourselves for other people's malicious choices and actions. Justin sobs as he says, I wish I could trade places with Alonzo. I'd do it in a heartbeat. Alonzo's sisters are extremely concerned. They live in fear that whoever did it could be walking past them, and they don't know. Which is an absolutely terrifying thought that I had not thought of until they brought it up. They want to know why and who did it. So do I. In March 2019, the KBI released a statement regarding Alonzo Brooks' case. And hold on to your butts, people. It's not good. The KBI was one of the several agencies that investigated the April 4th death of Alonzo Brooks. No evidence has been found that supports that Mr. Brooks was the victim of a crime. Therefore, this case is closed. No evidence? What are you talking about? What about the biggest piece of evidence there is? You look for him three times and he isn't there, and then on the fourth time he is just found out in plain sight? That seems pretty significant to me. As of right now, no law enforcement is investigating Alonzo's death. Billy Brooks says he doesn't understand how this case can be closed. There are no results, no answers as to how this happened. If there are no results, how can this case be closed? Tyler says that there are enough people that were at the party that they should be able to figure it out. Daniel expresses frustration that the FBI wasn't able to get any information out of anyone. He says law enforcement conducted lie detector tests and came up with nothing. However, many kids lawyered up and didn't even have to take a lie detector test at all. Maria is heartbroken. She's angry. She wants to know why the people of Lucene aren't saying anything. My hope is that someone watched this episode. I mean, this happened in 2004. It's been 16 years. My hope is that someone there who was present at that party, who was told to keep quiet, has moved away, maybe put some distance between themselves and Lucene, and now they feel comfortable enough or brave enough to speak up and give the family some peace. If you have any information regarding the death of Alonzo Brooks, please submit a tip at tips.fbi.gov or you can send them through unsolved.com. Before we wrap up, I always like to tell you guys my theory, but make sure you go on to my Instagram at mysterystillunsolved so that you can tell me yours. I think after Alonzo's friends left, Alonzo was flirting with a girl and that made some people at the party angry. Things got heated, but the fight was broken up. Later, Alonzo realizes that Adam, who was supposed to give him a ride home, is gone, and he has no ride. I think the later it gets, the more and more people leave. I think whatever happened didn't happen when there was a huge party still going on. 
the people who had started a fight with him earlier either stayed and saw an opportunity to get him or returned to the party when the majority of people had left. Maybe Alonzo noticed trouble. Maybe he knew he was outnumbered, so he begins to run towards the road. I think there was a struggle in which his shoes and hat came off. I think he was overpowered and thrown into a truck bed or even a trunk. I think he is taken to a separate location where he is strangled or something regarding the neck and later placed in a walk-in cooler while the suspects try to figure out what they're going to do now. Alonzo was placed by the river after the group waited until it had been searched by law enforcement, KBI, FBI, divers, dogs, etc. Maybe the guys heard through the small town grapevine that the Brooks family was coming to town to do a search on their own. Maybe they saw this as their opportunity. I believe they may have driven to the house late at night, a day or so before the Brooks family was coming, remembering that the house is normally empty because it's a rental property. Maybe a group of people involved carried his body and placed him by the river. While I don't believe the murder of Alonzo Brooks happened with a huge host of witnesses, I do believe that there are maybe one or two people who are not directly involved with his murder who saw something, either the murder itself or they saw when he was being taken. These people need to be brave and send in an anonymous tip. Another idea is maybe one of the kids involved is related to someone in law enforcement, like someone's son or nephew or cousin, and that's how they knew the exact moment that it would be safe to place Alonzo at the river without being caught. Another theory posted on Reddit and other cold case blogs, which people have posted anonymously, so take it with a grain of salt. No one has been implicated, so I'm not going to share the full names of the people mentioned, as I don't think it would be fair to them, especially if it ends up that they're not at all involved. But apparently, there's a pair of brothers, Pat B and Jerry B. These brothers' names pop up the most in the comments of the blog. It's rumored that they helped perpetuate the murder because one of their female relatives had some interaction with Alonzo at the party. It's also stated in these comments that these brothers have been heard bragging that they used a hunting dog shot collar to torture a person of color years ago. Additionally, the B family owned a local restaurant at the time, and it's rumored that this may have been where Alonzo's body was stored prior to it being dumped at the creek. While Pat and Jerry were much older than the majority of the partygoers, many commenters have stated that it would not be unusual to find these men at a party at which high school and college-age people were present. Even further, apparently members of the B family seem to have served on the city council or commission or something and are still to this day prominent members of the community. Tiffany B is rumored to be the girl that Alonzo Brooks was flirting with that night, which is allegedly the inciting event of the murder. Mandy J is a niece of either Pat or Jerry, and she has allegedly drunkenly told others about her uncle's involvement in the murder. Chris T is another man rumored to be involved, a friend of both Pat and Jerry B. The son of a local judge is also rumored to be involved. Donnie A is also a name that has been brought up in several comments. All right, so I promised you guys some updates right before I finished editing this episode. Well, let's be real. Right before Brian finished editing this episode, I learned a few bits of incredible information regarding the case. The first is that the FBI has found it imperative to reopen the investigation. They are committed to reinvestigating this case and are now offering a $100,000 reward to anyone who submits a tip that leads to an arrest. According to an NBC News article, U.S. Attorney Stephen McAllister was made aware of this case because of the Unsolved Mysteries episode. He says, It defies reason to believe that Alonzo's death was a suicide or that somehow he accidentally tumbled into a relatively shallow creek in Lynn County, leaving behind his boots and hat, all with no witnesses whatsoever. Yes, that is what we've all been thinking, Stephen. Thank you for showing up. He continues, It is past time for the truth to come out. The code of silence must be broken. Alonzo's family deserves to know the truth, and it is time for justice to be served. It's been 16 years, but we hope that with this passage of time, someone who has information will come forward. Agent Lena Romana says, 
Some of these kids are adults now. They may have been scared to come forward before or may not have known what they saw was all that important, but any piece of information is significant and could be the missing puzzle piece that we need to solve this case. The Department of Justice and the FBI are working together and they say that they've received several tips and are pursuing several leads. Unsolved Mysteries producers say that they've also received a few leads and that they believe are credible and of course they've passed them on to the authorities. The FBI has also found it imperative to conduct another autopsy. I'm giving you the side eye, Dr. Mitchell. So, Alonzo Brooks was actually exhumed one week ago today to further along the investigation. And I know everyone has different feelings regarding exhumation. I can only imagine how difficult the decision must have been to remove Alonzo from his place of rest. I'm sure that this week has been a very hard one for the family. Hopefully, if this helps the FBI find those responsible for Alonzo's death and bring them to justice, it will be worth it. And I think in a way, getting to know the family through the episode, I think that that's all that they really want, to find out who did it and bring them to justice. I also learned from an update that Unsolved Mysteries posted that out of all of the episodes that they've recently released, most of the tips that they have received has pertained to this particular case. So this is already amazing news. I'm so happy to hear that since the release of this episode, not only has the FBI reopened the investigation, but they are getting to work. Hopefully soon, Alonzo's family will get some much needed answers. As always, I made a post on Instagram at mystery still unsolved regarding this mystery. If you have any theories that you'd like to share, I would love to read about them. What do you think happened to Alonzo? Do you think he walked off on his own volition or is he a victim of foul play? Do you think the town of Lacine is keeping a secret or do you think only a few people really know about it? Go to the post and tell me your thoughts. If you liked this episode, please follow me on Instagram at mystery still unsolved. Please share with your friends and family. Um, sharing on your Facebook and Instagram is quick. It's cheap, but it makes a huge difference. Thanks for hanging out with me, guys. Like I've mentioned before, my husband, Brian, hates true crime, although he has been a little bit more interested since I began this podcast. Um, but it means so much to me that you guys are here. I'll see you guys next Tuesday when together we'll discover, did someone ever place a useful tip? Has justice prevailed? Or is the mystery still unsolved?